I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn uh, back to the Gospel of John, uh, to chapter 1, which we've started looking at a number of uh, weeks ago, uh, looking at the prologue in of the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Let me read once again uh, the prologue to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God." Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gospel and for the testimony that it gives to us and bears witness to Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh and came into this world that he might die for our sins and be risen again for our justification. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your saving work, and we thank you that you have loved us and cared for us and purchased us and redeemed us, knowing that we were undeserving, knowing that we, in and of ourselves, were not lovable or worthy of your love, and yet you actually came into this world. We are humbled by that and we are thankful. And we pray that now as we continue to look at the the end of these 18 verses that has, O Lord, such a marvelous statement that can really hardly even be scratching the surface of that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, O God. We ask for your mercy and patience with us as we 
stumble through such a divine and glorious truth and seek not to fully explain it, but just seek to understand what we can and most importantly, to believe it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So, like I said, we've been going through this prologue to John's gospel, and we broke it into three sections. This is the third section, and and the first section we looked at was verses 1 to 5. And in verses 1 to 5, John begins his gospel where the other gospels don't begin, meaning he begins with a focus on the deity of the word that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. And this is where John begins from the, not the beginning of time, but eternity. And as he lays forth the eternal word of God, he, he then goes into verses 6 to 13 to tell us that this eternal word that came into the world was indeed the true light of the world. By that He's the light of the world shining in the darkness and that the word of God, the eternal word of God came to bring the light of God's revelation of redemption into this dark world. And the true light was being testified to by John the Baptist that the true light of the world, the eternal word of God, had come into the world to give salvation to all of those who believe, to bring them from death to life, from darkness to light. And so having made now in his prologue, his introduction to the gospel, the point that the word of God gives both life and light to the world, John is now going to turn to the question of In what way did the divine word, the true light, come into the world? Like, we know and believe as Christians that God was incarnate and came into the world as a man. We know that now. But as someone is reading this gospel and maybe has never read the gospel before, John wants to make sure that they understand exactly what it is he is saying about this eternal word and this true light coming into the world. In what way did God come into the world? Now, if you were around during the time that John wrote this gospel in the first century, you would have been immersed in Hellenistic thinking and philosophy. And by Hellenistic Greek thinking and philosophy, you would view the world as existing in two opposing sides. And a lot of people even today think of the world like this in the Star Wars manner, that you've got the good and you've got the evil. You've got the dark side and you've got the light side. And so this is how they would think of the world. And when they thought of the world like that, they thought that body physicality was evil and spirituality was good. And so as you're reading John's gospel, you might miss his point after the first 13 verses, and you might conclude that what John is saying is that 
the true light, the eternal word of God, which is spiritual and good, entered into the material world. But he entered into the material world with a special revelation that was given through John the Baptist. And those who believed or who are enlightened unto that salvation given by John the Baptist about the true light of the world, they become children of God. So in some sense, there's this idea that you come into the know and you're saved because you are now in the know about the spiritual side of things. This is how a lot of people even today think about Christianity and the gospel. They think that Jesus has come to give us good moral teachings, good guidance in life, and to give us an insight into how to be spiritual and to come to God. And so if we would just listen to Jesus and his spirituality, that somehow we will be drawn closer to God through Jesus. Or if you were of the Jewish background, you might have read the first 13 verses of the Gospel of John and concluded that, okay, God himself assumed or adopted a body to come into the world, and he has sometimes done that in the Old Testament, right? We call these theophanies or Christophanies. So, for example, this wouldn't have been unheard of that God would take on a body if you don't have to turn there, but in Joshua 5, 13 to 15, for example, and there are others, you know, God appeared in body to, I think, Adam, Abraham, Moses, a lot of different people in the Old Testament in the form of an angel. And in Joshua 5, 13 to 15, we, we hear about this commander of the Lord's army coming uh, before Joshua. And here, here's what it says. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. So, so Joshua sees a man, an actual physical man standing before him with a sword. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So I'm in a conversation with this man. And he said, No. I love that. No. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Remember when Moses came to the burning bush? exactly what God told him out of the burning bush. You are in the presence of holiness and purity. You are in the presence of God. Take off your sandals. This is exactly what this man who appeared told Joshua. So, so even the Jewish people might read verses 1 to 13 of the Gospel of John, and they might think, okay, God came and and appeared in the body of a man. That's nothing new. We've seen that in the Old Testament. So, so the idea some may have had is that now God had come in his, and they might have thought, okay, God came in his final and most powerful appearance uh, with this final message of salvation. 
So there's a lot of different things you could view from 1 to 13, but here's the thing. John doesn't want them to miss his point. And his point is this, that the eternal word, as we said, God himself did something way more spectacular and way more profound than taking on the appearance of a man or giving some spiritual revelation. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is absolutely staggering. We talk about it every Christmas, and we should, but it is actually a statement that is so profound and so mind-blowing that it really does transcend human wisdom and explanation. It, I used to have this military friend and he always cracked me up, a Marine, and when we'd talk about scripture or whatever, or someone would say something that is difficult or hard to understand, he would like take the form of a block and he would say, I don't have a compartment for that. Like this was his way of joking. I just don't know where to put it in my head. And, and in life, there are things that we can explain and put in the compartments of our mind and we can sort of comprehend them and fit them in to the way that we look and think about the world. And we do. I mean, this is why we can fly rockets to, the, to outer space and so on. We learn and we adapt and we comprehend things. But this is one of those things that you and I, beloved, will never be able to fully explain and nor should we ever go down the path of trying to reconcile the mystery of the incarnation with our puny little thinking or brains because at the end of the day, it is one of those things that is absolutely staggering that God became flesh and dwelt among us. How are we to understand this as best we can? John is going to, he summarizes that reality for us of the incarnation in verses 14 to 18. Again, not trying to explain it in detail, but putting it before us so that, what's the purpose of the Gospel of John, John 20, 31? So that you might believe in him and have life in his name. So this is a core teaching of the Christian church and the faith that John is presenting to us here. So we'll look at it in three sections. Uh, verse 14, which we'll just call the nature of the incarnation. How do we understand the nature of the incarnation? What does that verse mean? Then we'll look at verse 15, John's testimony to the incarnation. And finally, and that'll be really short, but Finally, we'll conclude with the fruit of the incarnation. Why does it matter? What does it mean for us? Okay? So let's look at the nature of the incarnation. So as we said, John already told us in verses 1 to 5 that the Word is God himself. 
So we're not going to go through that. So what does he mean by saying that God became flesh? So let's begin with the word flesh. What does it mean, the word flesh, in this context? Well, often, if you've read the scriptures, you'll see that the word flesh has a negative connotation to it, right? So sometimes you'll see in the scriptures, Paul, the apostle Paul, will refer to our flesh, and he'll talk about our sinful natures, the, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And flesh can have these, don't live according to the flesh, but live according to the spirit. And so it can have this sense of our sinful nature. But in this context, flesh is not referring to our sinful nature, but is really referring to flesh in the sense of our humanity. The word, God's very self-expression, he takes on our humanity, excluding our sin. So when John says the word became flesh, we have to understand that John is not saying that God became flesh in the sense that God ceased to be God and changed from God into man. You understand, we, we're not saying, John is not saying that God stopped being God and then turned into a man. We, we know that God is immutable, God is unchangeable, he never changes, his word never changes. But John is saying that God did become fully man, yet God remained fully God at the same time. So he's not saying the word appeared to be man, or that God adopted the form of a man, or that God borrowed the body of a man, or that the word became two distinct people, one God and the other manhood, not saying God became two people, nor is he saying that the word became some kind of new thing where God and man mixed and formed some kind of third thing. He's not saying any of that. He is saying two distinct natures, God and man, were united truly, perfectly, undividedly, and unmixedly, as one author says, into one person, our Lord Jesus Christ. Eternity entered time. The invisible became visible, and the creator entered into his creation. He was... God was always fully God. He became fully man and did so in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you think about Christ, the word becoming flesh, becoming man, I want you to think about the Lord Jesus in this way as a man. As a man, he was born of a woman, like we are. He was, though, conceived by the Holy Spirit. As a man, our Lord nursed at the breasts of his mother. He learned to walk 
He learned to talk. He learned to read. He learned to write. He learned to add and subtract. Jesus learned to play with his friends and to work with his hands. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Jesus had parents and he had siblings and he had friends and he even had his own enemies. Jesus hungered and ate. Jesus became thirsty and drank. Jesus became tired and he slept like we do. Jesus felt sadness and wept. Jesus felt pain when he was hurt. Jesus was at times moved to anger and felt compassion. Jesus prayed to the Father as we pray, and he was tempted as we are tempted. Jesus was also called to submit to God's will in his own life, as each and every one of us are called to submit to God in our lives. Jesus is fully man. Just like we are humans, so Jesus became man with body and soul. And the only difference is that in all of these things, unlike us, Jesus had never sinned. Jesus, in his body and soul, really suffered and shed his blood. Jesus actually really died on the cross, was really buried, was really put to death and crucified, and he really rose again bodily from the grave, and he really ascended into heaven. And Jesus did all of this as God and man united perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. Let that rest on your mind when you think about Jesus Christ. We are not talking about a spiritual guru. We are not talking about a man like you and me in every single way although he is, but we are talking about a man who, who is God at the same time. God, man. God became man. And he always is, even now as Christ is at the right hand of the Father, Understand, beloved, that our Savior has a body like us. And John goes on to say, the word became flesh, and then he says, so not to miss the point, and dwelt among us. Literally, the Greek verb for dwelt means and this is important, and I think John uses this for this reason, means he pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent among us. So if you think about the word tabernacle or you think about the, world, the word tent, 
As a Christian, if you know your Old Testament, what does your mind go back to? It goes back to the Old Testament. And so John is saying, I think this is in his mind, I think he's saying, remember back in the scriptures that God commanded the people to make a tabernacle in Exodus. John's mind is going back to the Old Testament. Do you, do you remember that? When God commands them to make a tabernacle in Exodus. And he says to them to do this in Exodus 25, 8, because he says, you make this tabernacle so that I will dwell among you. This is what he tells them. And so God gives them very specific instructions about building this tabernacle. He gives them the pattern for erecting it. And then we see in Exodus 40, 34, that after the tabernacle is finally completed according to God's design, that it is in this tabernacle that God makes the glory of his presence known to Israel. And his glory dwells among them in the tabernacle. Here's how it goes in Exodus 40, 34 to 38. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so even this tabernacle became the pattern for what would become the temple, and in the temple, God would dwell in the Holy of Holies, just like he dwelt in the tabernacle. And so God was among them. So the point is that when the word became flesh, God chose to dwell among his people now, in a more personal way. When God became flesh and dwelt among us, that was the ultimate manifestation of the presence of God and his glory among mankind. G.K. Beale said it good like this. He says, It is in the, incarn the incarnation represented the beginning of God's presence coming out of the Holy of Holies. You see, God was in the Holy of Holies. He was in the tabernacle. He was dwelling with his people there in the Old Testament. But when Christ comes, God comes out of the Holy of Holies, out from the presence of the tabernacle, and he becomes man the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why you see in the New Testament, Jesus, when he's talking about his coming death and resurrection, do you remember when he tells the Pharisees, he says, destroy this temple. He's talking about the physical temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will do what? I will raise it up again, right? And they thought, you're crazy. How are you going to destroy the temple? It took so many years to build this temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? And then what does Jesus say? 
And what did they not understand about what he was saying? The gospel writer says us, they did not understand that Jesus was talking about his own body. Because Jesus is the temple of God. Jesus is God's temple. Jesus is God in the flesh dwelling among us. Shining his glory in the world. And for 33 years, he dwelt physically among man. And he manifested his glory, the glory of God, by his very presence to all these people. This is why the scripture calls the coming Messiah, one of the names given to him is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so that, of course, doesn't mean that Jesus went around shining like a bright light, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, or the temple of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where he fills the temple. It's not, it's not how the glory of Christ shone in the world. He was, in, he was veiled in flesh, but as he lived, and as our Lord put on God's display of divine attributes, we see in Jesus truth, wisdom, love, grace, knowledge, power, holiness. You see it all displayed in the Gospel of John. All of these things belong to Jesus. They are his glory, and they are the same glory of God the Father. This is why John goes on to say in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and for John and for us, beloved, Jesus is the full expression of God's glory. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The tabernacle or temple and all of it, the Old Testament, pointed to the coming of the true temple, the true God into the world. And he was dwelling among us. Isaiah 40, 3 to 5 says, predicting the coming of the Messiah. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 60, 1-3. 
Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And so John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do I understand, do you understand the incarnation? Can you explain it in detail? No. It's a mystery. And yet we are called, beloved, John is calling us to believe it. That the word became flesh. The best statement I think we can have in terms of giving us some understanding of this great truth uh, comes from the Council of Chalcedon in AD 451. Uh, they did it as good as they can explaining what we as Christians hold to, defending this truth for five centuries. And I'm not going to read that one to you, though, <laughs> as good as it is. Uh, the reason I'm not is because I want to read to you from the London Baptist Confession of Faith in 1689, because they too speak to this truth of the incarnation. And since we're studying through it in our Sunday school hour, um, I thought it would be good for us to read from chapter 8, paragraph 2, because it also puts forth a great um, definition, if you will, of the incarnation says it like this. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made, did, when the fullness of time was complete, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common affirmities of it, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now, John is going to drive this home for us yet again in his prologue. And he's going to make reference again to the witness of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was himself a physical person, right? He testified concerning Jesus. He cried out when he saw Jesus, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
And so John is bearing witness to a physical person, to a man walking before him. He's bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ was in the world. And John says that John the Baptist identified him as the long-expected Messiah. John says of Jesus, John the Baptist, he may come after me in terms of my ministry. You may think that because I become before Jesus in terms of ministry, that that makes me the one with greater honor. But John says that's not so. John says this Jesus ranks before me for he was before me. He was before him in a temporal sense because he's eternal, but he is also before John and before you and me, beloved, in a preeminent sense because he is absolutely fully God. And this is what John the Baptist is bearing witness to. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That's the fruit of the incarnation, beloved. When Christ came into the world, became man, fully God and fully man, Christ came and in all of his fullness, through him we received grace upon grace. The most popular interpretation of that verse, verse 16, which we have here in the ESV, grace upon grace, is to say that God's grace in Christ abounded all the more to us. It means God's grace will never be exhausted toward us. God has shown us the immeasurable riches of God's grace through and in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.7. And verse 17 highlights that grace in Christ in contrast to the law. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so, from his fullness, grace upon grace, abounding grace comes through Christ Jesus in contrast to the law. That's one way to understand it, and it's true. But interestingly... And I didn't know this until I studied this. It could also be translated like this. And I actually think this is how it should be translated. For from his fullness we have all received, it can be translated like this, grace instead of grace. Grace instead of grace. What in the world would that mean? And I think this is John's point. John is, is saying that the exchange is an exchange of one kind of lesser grace for a greater grace. And verse 17 is not really a contrast between the law given through Moses and the grace and truth through Jesus. 
It's actually an explanation of verse 16. And the point is that the law given by God to Israel was an earlier display of God's grace that is now replaced by the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. The law, after all, was not devoid of grace and truth, was it? To begin with, it was given to an undeserving people. It, there were many blessings in the law. It included the sacrificial system through which Old Covenant saints could experience the grace of forgiveness. The Apostle Paul says of the law in Romans 7, 12, and 16 that the law is holy and good. It helps us to see our need for a Savior. The law is a gift from God. It is, it is God's grace to mankind that shows us our need for a Savior, that shows us that, that because we are sinners, we need a Savior to come. And all of this in the law is meant as a gift of God's grace that we would not have known about the coming Messiah without it. Is that not a good gift to God's people? That he gave this to them? And Jesus even says, like we read this, this morning, in John's Gospel, that Jesus says, if his opponents really believed Moses, then they would have believed in Jesus as the Christ. If we receive grace and truth through Jesus, and if to truly believe Moses' testimony in the law is to believe in Jesus, then grace and truth were available under the Mosaic administration, right? Therefore, it's not, it's not the absence and presence of grace that is contrasted in verse 17, but it's the lesser measure and greater measure of grace. From his fullness, we have all received grace instead of grace. For the law was given through Moses. That's good. That was gracious. But a greater grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is so awesome. And, and that actually is in line with verse 14. Because verse 14 says that the word that is equal with the Father is full of grace and truth. So it's not like the Father in the Old Testament wasn't full of grace and truth. But now Christ came and in the most full expression of God's love and his kindness and his goodness, he came and he gave us a greater measure of grace in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is something for us to rejoice in, beloved. And, and a couple minutes here, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 puts it like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the words of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we now have some insight into the depths of God's mercy in sending his son to die for sinners. A more perfect sacrifice by God himself. So that's the fruit of his incarnation, a greater measure of grace toward us. The second is in verse 18. Through the incarnation, we not only have a more special measure of grace toward us in Christ in the new covenant, but we can know God in a way that we would not have ever been able to know him before. We can know that he knows us in the most intimate way, more intimate than even the saints of old were able to know him. John says, no one has ever seen God. No one in the Old Testament ever saw God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus. He has made him known to us. Beloved, because God took on flesh, you can know God personally. Because God became incarnate, beloved, this is why it matters. Because God became incarnate, you can know God and his love for you in Christ Jesus. He knows your pain and your suffering and your infirmities. He has been through what we have been through. He was tempted in every way that we are tempted yet without sin. When you are sad, God knows what it means to be sad. When you are hungry, God knows what it means for you as a man or a woman to be hungry. When you get angry at unrighteousness, like we did this week at the murder of our sister, God knows what it is to be angry as a man at unrighteousness. When you become sick or a loved one becomes sick in your family, God knows what that's like too. He knows what it's like to lose a friend when his friend Lazarus died. God knows what it's like if you have no money and you have nowhere to lay your head. God knows what it's like when your friends betray you. God knows what it's like when the world hates you. God knows this about us, beloved, because he became fully man. And because he knows this about us, he knows how to care for us and how to comfort us, doesn't he? He knows what it means to love a mother and a father and siblings. He knows what it looks like to love his friends and to care for them. And because he knows these things, and because he took on flesh, it also means this. 
that if we want to know how to live in a way that pleases God, then who is it that we need to look to? We need to look to Jesus. We need to look at the God who took on flesh and walked as we're walking. And we need to follow his pattern of life. And we need to obey him and follow him and, and do the things that he has called us to do because Jesus took on flesh and did it for us. And now he says to his disciples, he says, follow me. The incarnation, beloved, is glorious in so many ways. And John has laid it out for us at the very beginning of his gospel. The eternal word, the true light of men, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And he did this so that if you believe on him, Repent of your sin, turn to Christ, and trust him. You will have eternal life. This is the promise that Christ gives to us. And so the rest of the gospel, John is just going to lay out for us over and over and over again the beauty and the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. You excited to see that? I am. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, as we think about the truth that is laid here before us, it is truly mind-blowing and staggering and extremely humbling, oh God. I think sometimes, Father, we can read a truth like this and we can pass over it and sort of become indifferent to it because we have heard about it so many times and we have even thought about it, but I don't think, Father, we can think about it deeply enough that the Lord Jesus Christ would come into the world, God incarnate, and become like us. Oh Lord, we thank you for that great gift of yourself to us. And we thank you for loving us in such a tangible and mighty way. And, and sometimes we don't exalt your name in our lives through our speech and through our behavior and through our attitudes and through the way we live as much as we ought to. We take your name in vain and violate the second commandment more than we would like to admit, O oh God. We ask that you would forgive us for thinking so smallly little of you. We ask that you would forgive us, Father, for not elevating and glorifying the name of your beloved Son as he ought to be glorified. Forgive us for having such small thoughts. Forgive us for thinking so puny that you would take on flesh, Lord Jesus, to come into this world and for not giving it the magnitude that it so deserves. You are a God like no other God.
Every other God is fake and is an idol and is a figment of man's imagination. But you are the God of all creation and you have created all things and you are before all things and in you all things exist. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and your robe fills the temple with your glory. And now we know you through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you, O God, for giving your life on our behalf that we might be forgiven and redeemed. We give you all of the praise and all of the glory, and all of the adoration. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take our hymnals and turn to number 124. 124, as we come to close the service, Lead on, O King Eternal, and if you're able, please stand with me as we sing. you are able and invited, uh, please, to stay for uh, lunch. Um, it's uh, Thanksgiving-themed, and for that, uh, we have much, much to be thankful for. Amen? Amen. I leave you with the benediction of the Lord, and we will then sing the doxology. And I, learned, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. That is your benediction, beloved. Let's sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy 